They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. This is God's word. Good evening. My name is Phil. Uh, I'm the assistant minister here. It's lovely to have you with us, especially if you're here for the first time, if you're a visitor or you're new. If you've uh, got your Bibles, keep them open at Mark 9. And let's pray for God's help as we look at this passage together. Our Father God, we pray that you would grant us the mind of Christ. We pray that you would help us to understand who he is. We pray that you would help us to understand what he has done. And we pray that we would show we've grasped that by the lives that we live, lives that would be Uh, full of humble service and not self-seeking. Father, we need your help, and so we pray now that your spirit would change us by your word. Amen. Why do we have a prime minister in this country? I'm not making a political point, don't worry. I'm not going to advocate anarchy from the front of church tonight, or monarchy even, or anything else, whatever your political predilection. But why do we call the top politician in our country, I know technically it's the queen, but why do we call the top politician in our country the prime minister? Why do we call the senior cabinet in our country ministers? The word minister comes from the word to serve, comes from the word for a servant, and originally it actually comes from the Latin word minus, which means less, which seems very odd because there are leaders. So why do we call our leaders, ministers, servants, lesser ones? We do that, actually, because we expect them to serve. To serve the state and to serve people like you and me. We want them to be people who humbly put the needs of the country and its people before the needs of themselves. We expect them to look after even the lowest in society. And so we get angry when uh, things like the Grenfell Tower happen, and uh, we don't yet know, but it looks to a lot of people like the poor and the needy were just ignored, and they were taken advantage of and suffered terribly. We expect the great ones to look after the least. But we never stop to ask why. It's just, well, that's how it goes in Western civilization. Around the world, it's it's a pretty standard expectation that politicians, leaders serve but why? Because actually, when you go back historically, if you go back to Greco-Roman civilization, it was not like that. At the time uh, Mark was writing these words, culture was very, very different. Instead of 
um, humility, the, the virtue that was elevated then was philotomia, the, the love of honor. So you never see in the great Greek philosophical manuals of how to live a good life any mention of the importance of humility. The great Aristotle insisted that seeking honor and reputation for yourself is an entirely good thing to do. You were expected to be humble before the gods because they could zap you and emperors because they could behead you, but you were not expected to show humility before anybody else. And the thought that you would serve people who are your peers, much less your lessers in society, was just anathema. You were to seek all the, the honor you could get. Uh, so Emperor Augustus um, wrote the wonderfully titled Res Gestae Divi Augusti. Um, this is his, the title of his diary, The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. This is not a man with a small ego. And he wrote to ensure that people knew how wonderful he was. So he listed 35 different areas of accomplishment. I kid you not. Um, we're all thinking, gosh, that's, yeah, I'd have to go back to sort of... Uh, under 11B school football team to get anything close to 35. But he had military, intellectual, civic, and he concluded, I quote, honor that up to the present day has been decreed to no one besides myself is worthy for me on account of my courage, clemency, justice, and piety. And the extraordinary thing is, people didn't think he was absolutely nuts. They thought, yep, when you've achieved... That's how you should speak. Not even the most deluded contestant on The Apprentice would dream of speaking like this. But back then, that was how you spoke. Honor is to be sought. Achievements are to be celebrated. Weakness is to be derided. And shame is to be avoided at all costs. And you relate up. And you deride what's below. So what changed? How do you go from a culture like that to a culture where you call your senior politician a minister. History tells us actually it was the rise of Christianity that changed Western civilization, from one that celebrated honor to one that celebrates humility. And the change came about because at the heart of Christianity is Jesus, who came to die on a cross in shame, who poured himself out for people who are way beneath him, and he's God after all. And when the cross is at the center of your religion, humble service is elevated to the highest possible virtue. And what Jesus modeled by dying on a cross, he actually then taught, as we read tonight, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Okay, fair enough. If you're interested in politics and history, great. You feel like you came to the right church. If that's not you, you're thinking, what am I doing here? But We make a terrible mistake if we think Jesus' words in Mark 9 are primarily an explanation of the development of Western politics. What they are primarily is a challenge to personal attitudes. Because although we want our leaders to be servants, we all know that in our own hearts, I don't like to serve. And I bet you don't either. I hate it when people treat me as less than I actually am. I hate it when people think I'm less than I am. I hate it when people ask me to do things that I think are beneath me. Humility just doesn't come naturally to us. And what makes this call of the cross even harder is that the historical influence of Christianity is being eroded in our culture. You don't see an awful lot of humility actually these days in the city and the corporate worlds where we work Monday to Friday. 
How many of us were taught in our workplace induction training and corporate values? Humility is the most important thing that we value in this company. But if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be useful to God, if we want to please our Heavenly Father, then we need to learn from Jesus how to live lives marked by humility and service. So uh, with that, just um, a couple of points for you. Um, the, the passage really just teaches us to humble yourself and serve others and to rejoice in the achievements of others. But before we get there, let's just remember where we are in Mark. So uh, the whole central section of Mark 8, 22 to 10, 52, where we are for the summer, is built around three statements of Jesus, three times when he's revealed to the disciples that he is the Messiah, God's great saviour king, the divine king come to his people. And three times he then teaches in this central section, and as Messiah, I have come to die. I will save, I will rule by dying. I'm not going to reign in glory. I'm going to be rejected, beaten, mistreated, and I will die. And then three days later, I will rise again. And as we've seen, he teaches that if we want to follow him, then it's the same path for us. So as uh, 8.34 to 38, which is in in one sense the the central driver of this section, says, if we want to follow Jesus, there are those three things. We must deny ourselves, we must take up our cross, and we must follow Jesus whatever it costs, even our lives. And I think as as we come to this second statement of Jesus about to die, what he does now is get practical. Okay, what does it actually mean? I mean, you know, There's no physical cross for us anymore. So what do you mean, Jesus? And tonight he'll tell us that to deny ourselves will mean humbling ourselves and serving others and rejoicing in the achievements of others. Okay, let's dive in at verse 30. So verse 30, Mark chapter 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where he was because he was teaching his disciples He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus withdraws from public life to invest himself in the training of his disciples. So they're going to be ready after he returns to heaven to faithfully proclaim the good news about him, to tell people who he really was and what he really did. And in particular, he wants to teach them the particular thing that means he needs to have them on their own, undistracted, is that, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now that is not good usually in Mark. In Mark, fear is usually the opposite of faith. And in Mark, when people don't ask Jesus, that's bad. So Mark has told us in in chapter 4, as Jesus explained why he spoke in parables, in part it was to force people to say, I don't understand, please help me. And those with a real spiritual hunger would come to him for understanding. So the disciples are afraid. "Mm, That's never positive in Mark. And secondly, they don't bother asking. They just are confused. And you see how far they are from getting things from what happens next. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) Jesus has just taught, I am the great divine savior. I am God in human flesh. Come to save all people. Come to fulfill the promises that have been given for thousands of years. And I'm going to do so by dying in shame to serve you. 
And they spend the discussion time after his talk discussing which of them is the greatest disciple. (laughs) Talk about clueless. Although I say they're clueless. They know enough to know, yeah, it's not going to go well if we admit to Jesus what we've been talking about. You know, they get get enough to know that's not going to go well. So none of them fronts up and tells Jesus what they've been saying. Um, The problem with having God with you is that he knows what they've been saying. And so he sits them down, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first, must be the very last and the servant of all. He turns their whole world upside down. Now, what's interesting to my mind is what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, you are so wrong to want greatness. Actually, ambition seems to be something God has given us. What he says, actually, is you're looking for greatness in the wrong way in the wrong place, and in the wrong time. You achieve greatness the opposite way from what you think. Fine, want to be great, but let me tell you how you actually achieve greatness. In God's eternal paradise kingdom, the first, the most exalted, the greatest, will be those who on earth gave up the most, who on earth humbled themselves right down to the bottom rung, who on earth became the very, very least, who did not rule, but served. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. It's the same theme coming back again and again. It's cross now, crown later. But you see, there will be real glory to be enjoyed in the kingdom of God, real power to be wielded in eternity in the recreated cosmos, real positions of authority that require leaders to exercise it. But if you want to be exalted then, you better be a servant now. And the higher the position in God's kingdom eternally, the lower you must be in this life. It makes sense when you think about it. Power corrupts, but humble service prepares the heart for leadership. Humble service teaches the one who will finally exercise power to do so for the sake and benefit of others. And that's why Jesus is the perfect king. That's why you can actually trust Jesus with ultimate power and not be worried that he'll turn into another Robert Mugabe, a promising liberator who then just turns into a wicked dictator. You can trust Jesus to wield ultimate authority because he willingly poured out everything and gave up all his power to serve and save ungrateful sinners. You can trust a man like that to be our leader. That's the principle. But as I said, Mark then gets practical and grounds things in daily life. Verse 36. So he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now to our ears, that's a pretty odd way to make your point because everybody loves children. What's the big deal about, you know, cuddling a toddler. I mean, every politician knows that's what you do. But his point is actually a different one from what we're thinking. Because back in that culture, children had no value at all. I mean, economically, what do they produce? Nothing. They're just a drain on resources. And they weren't viewed quite the way that we view the little princes and princesses. They were not snowflakes back then. They were really actually not considered very highly at all. Lots of them didn't survive. And adults were the people with the status. In some ways, things are very different in our days, but actually not in every way. 
Uh, I remember going up to the creche um, up there in the, um, in the panic room, as I call it, at the, <laughs> up there in the, on the balcony, um, at the end of annual lunch after the morning service one year. And so the, the, the kids, the, the, the babies and the toddlers have been in there all morning service, and then they've been out very briefly to be fed, and then they've gone up there for the annual lunch while the, the adults um, heard the church vision. Um, and, uh, and we'd gone on a bit longer than, uh, than had been planned. And when I finally went up to say, okay, it's, um, we're about to finish, uh, I opened the door, and there was, shall we say, a certain atmosphere. It wasn't spring flowers. Uh, fetid would be the word that sprang to my mind. Um, and I said, okay, two minutes, and then the parents are coming. And at that moment, uh, the children then uh, tidied up all of the toys. They uh, packed up all the used nappies and the tissues and wet wipes and put them in a bin. And they all changed into uh, clean baby grows and thanked the helpers before filing out. It doesn't go like that with children. They saw mummy and ran off and left the people who'd been <laughs> serving them in that um, delightful environment for half a day just to clear up. You don't get thanks from little children. You don't get thanks and honor. You don't get anything really from serving them. And so the picture we're to have in our head as Jesus welcomes this child to teach them is not some cherubic little child who is sitting on his lap, putting up his hand to ask theological questions of the Messiah. It's a snotty, screaming little brat with dirty hands and no social graces. And Jesus says, no, you welcome like People like this, that's what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God, to welcome people like this. It is the ultimate test, therefore, of our hearts. If I truly follow the God who poured out everything to serve, then that attitude has to start rubbing off on me. It's not that I earn my way into heaven by being a real servant, but if I truly understand that Jesus has died for me, has poured out everything for me, then that has to start affecting my heart. Oswald Chambers uh, points out in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, he says this, he says, most of us are actually willing to do the most humble, menial, subservient tasks and to do so willingly, so long as the right people are watching. It's true, isn't it? The real question of whether I'm a servant comes when no one's watching or when the right people don't see. When I do things and they're not noticed, and they're not thanked, and they're not appreciated in spite of all the sacrifice and effort. You only know whether you're a servant when you are treated like a servant. That's the real test of servanthood, is how do I respond in my heart when I'm actually treated like a servant, rather than, gosh, that was really kind of you and very good of you to humble yourself and do that. When I can be treated like a servant and not feel resentful, then I really am walking in Jesus' path. Humble yourself and serve others, Jesus says. Secondly, um, rejoice in the achievements of others. Now this can feel, it feels like just a a different section. So quite often in the Bibles, it's a uh, various teaching on discipleship, which is the editor's way of saying, I haven't a clue how all this fits together. But actually, uh, I think that what he's saying is it's just another practical lesson in self-denial at the sharp end for these disciples. So verse 38, teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. How very annoying. 
They are supposed to be the chosen ones, the 12 disciples, Jesus' elite. And just earlier in the chapter, last week, in fact, we saw they, oh, yes, they totally failed to drive out a demon. And now, as if it's not bad enough to have failed in your core ministry, you find some random punter who has nothing to do with Jesus' elite training, and he's going and doing the very thing you failed to do and doing it successfully. You actually get the impression from what, they, what, from what John says in verse 38, he thinks Jesus is going to be pleased. Jesus, don't worry, I know we bogged up the bit about serving and everything, but you'll be really pleased to know that there was somebody trying to drive out a demon who wasn't one of us, so I told him to stop. Uh, yeah, doesn't go well, does it? Jesus can see into his heart, and he knows what's really going on. And so verse 39, don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Now, we do have to be careful before we get into what these verses do mean, uh, not to mangle them into meaning something else entirely. Jesus is not saying that we must accept as genuine everyone and anyone who claims to follow him. And that we are to be united with other Christian churches and other Christian leaders, no matter what they teach, as long as they claim they follow Jesus, that ought to be enough for us. No, of course, in, we, we saw in the very start of this series that uh, it began with a boat journey where Jesus spent the entire boat journey warning them about false teachers and telling them not to be taken in. And in uh, 8.38, a couple of weeks ago, he was very blunt that if people are ashamed of the things that I teach now, Jesus says, I'll be ashamed of them on judgment day. There is a need for discernment. And Jesus is talking about real disciples, not just anybody. But, 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 we mustn't underestimate how easily you and I can excuse what is actually just petty envy. And we sort of baptize it in a veneer of discernment. And as Jesus shows us here, we're never more willing to see error in others than when they seem to be enjoying success on my turf in things that I'm struggling with. You know, when their church plant grows, even though, well, I've heard some of the sermons and I'm really not sure about the handling of the Bible. And lots of unbelievers are converted in their church. And, but the course they use uh, for outreach is not actually as clear as it could be on the gospel. And their congregation is joyfully making sacrificial decisions to serve the poor and plant churches in tough areas. Even though when I went along, I have to say, some of the songs they sing were, yeah, I wouldn't sing songs. I think the lyrics were just not right and the singing was just very self-indulgent. Jesus warns us, be very, very wary of that attitude especially when they're doing well at the things we're not doing well at. It's very easy for us to call it discernment, to call it being uh, just zealous for truth, when actually it's just I'm envious that they seem to be doing well at stuff that I thought we should do well at. Now, what about individually? Now, obviously, the tightest application is gospel ministry. Uh, What do I do when God doesn't give me the gifts to serve him that I want? And I see others, and I don't think they're actually as as keen to follow him. They're less regular in attending church, and yet they seem to, 
They seem to find when they invite friends to guest events, they come. Why is it God allows their thing to work and mine doesn't? Why is it that, that he seems to have given gifts to people who I think aren't as mature as me that I really wanted? Why is it that uh, my small group, the, the, the numbers dwindle, uh, and, and I'm sure I put in more time prepping than his group, and the, the group's enormous. That's the tightest application, I guess, is gospel ministry. The, you know, the times when I may not be great at serving Jesus, but when I do have a go, it doesn't seem to go very well, and yet I know that there are areas of his life or her life where I'm, I'm fighting sin harder, and yet... And yet God seems to bless it when they talk to their colleagues about gospel things. They come along to church events, and mine don't. And we get envious and angry. It's always going to be a battle, but the question is, am I fighting that attitude? And I guess if I was to expand it out a bit, uh, I'll only fight it when it comes to this area of ministry, if I'm fighting in every area of life. How I respond when I see others enjoying blessings I want. And I'm not sure they deserve them massively. When I see their careers flourish, them buying a flat in London, them going on nice holidays, them happy in a relationship. We must beware of the grumbling, envious spirit. Beware of it. Rejoice in the achievements and the blessings of others. Now, as I say, the tightest uh, application here is really talking about ministry, what happens when we try and serve Jesus. And the key is in this phrase, in my name, that gets repeated throughout these little verses. Verse 38, he was casting out demons in your name. Verse 39, no one who does a miracle in my name. 41, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name. The disciples failed to cast out a demon when they tried to do it in their own strength. But here's a man who is faithfully ministering in my name. And what matters is not conformity to the way I think ministry should look like, the way I think church should always be done. What matters is whether it's faithful to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the words he spoke, the patterns he gave us. The point is we want to see his kingdom grow, not just my little corner of it. And so we need to put to death that attitude that we'll only be happy if my bit grows and that can't rejoice when others do. Now look, both these things, serving others in humility and living, rejoicing in the achievements of others, they require that we trust that God sees and God will reward. And both require that I trust that now is not the time for a crown of glory, but a cross of shame. Now is not the time actually when I'm going to enjoy God's glorious rewards, but now is the time for humbly serving others. In other words, I'll never get these attitudes right unless I'm following Jesus' path. But if I know that there will be a glorious reward one day in Jesus' kingdom, then it doesn't really matter if I spend my time now serving thanklessly in humble ways that never receive much recognition. It doesn't matter, actually, if my ministry never flourishes the way some other people's ministry flourishes. Because Jesus sees. It's he who will reward at the end. We need God's help, though and God's resources if we're going to live like this. Because our natural inclination is always to serve me, to elevate me and to seek my comfort and greatness. And it was the cross of Christ that changed Western civilization to one which valued humility. And it's still the cross of Christ today which changes you and me so that we become humble people. 
that changes us from lovers of self to servers of others. And when we realize that we were a whole lot worse than a snotty, tantruming toddler, we were wicked rebels who'd ruined God's world. We've brought great dishonor and shame on our God and Father. We've failed to love him and we've used and trampled on and let down and hurt other humans made in his image who he made us to love. And in spite of that, he poured himself out to love us and serve us. And when we start to get that, we're freed from the pathological self-love and the need for recognition and approval now. And we start to learn the joy of serving Jesus now, confident that there'll be a crown later. In Rome, greatness was a very simple equation, power plus honor. That's what greatness was in Rome. The equation's different in Christianity. Greatness in Christianity is service plus humility. Service plus humility. Now, at the time Mark was writing, the cross was the symbol of Rome's power to brutally crush and humiliate any who defied her rule. But Jesus turned that world on its head. And in the only kingdom that will endure forever, the cross is the symbol of true greatness. And we must embrace that cross, not just as our salvation, but as the pattern for our life. You see, there is... To be honest, there is nothing as ugly or perverse in the whole world as a proud Christian. Nothing. If I'm proud, I have not understood Jesus. I have not understood the cross. If I give myself to serve others, it may not work out down here. I may not get ahead. I may not be seen. But up there, someone sees, ultimately we live our lives before the audience of one. And he sees, and he smiles, and one day he will richly, richly reward. We read these amazing words in Philippians chapter 2. As Paul writes to the church, encouraging them to serve one another. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, value others above yourselves. Each of you not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 